Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 27, The Search for Life. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So this is the podcast where we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to tell you the coolest information about NASA and about space. So today we're talking about something super cool, how we're looking for life in the universe. We're talking with Aaron Burton and Mark Fries. Aaron and Mark are both planetary scientists here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And we had a great discussion about the different NASA initiatives, all looking at organic material in the solar system. And what we're finding from these studies that help us understand the fundamentals of life here on Earth and possibly in the universe. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Aaron Burton and Dr. Mark Fries. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Well, this one's going to be good because I'm excited because this one's about the ultimate question, right? Are we alone in the universe? That's literally, I mean, it's in the NASA mission statement, right? Everything we do is to ex explore the unknown and or reveal the unknown for the benefit of humankind or something like that. Um, so I guess... I'll start off with this question. How many times a day do you ask yourself that question? Are we alone? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's back there, you know, squirrel caging around somewhere all the time. I don't yeah. know if I stop in like middle of shaving and go, wait a minute, but are we alone? <laughs> but, you know, I do think about it on a regular basis. Sure. I figure, well, because that, that's the whole <laughs> thing, right? This is your job. Your job is to, is to look for organic material, right? So I guess... Like to just pull back, and I, th I just think that would be super cool. Are we alone? Or, you know, that's not bad. Yeah, I would say I, I think about it more at night. <laughs> well, when you look up at the stars and you just right. see all of the stars, and okay. that's just what we can see. Yeah, exactly. You know, so the, the thought that we're the only game in town seems a pretty, pretty yeah. unlikely. I just took a camping trip out to Big Bend a couple weeks ago. And that was just an eye-opener because I thought I had seen, wow, this is, there's a lot of stars in the sky, you know, when I was living in Pennsylvania. But out in Big Bend, like, you can see the Milky Way. Yeah. And there's constellations where you couldn't even see them because there were just that many more stars. It was, it was just the clearest sky I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, wow, this is just, you know, just a different part of Earth I can see this many stars. This, it was crazy. All right, well, so um, let's, let's start off with just a little bit about you guys, and um, since you're both planetary scientists, kind of what your focuses are. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I have uh, built a research lab where we look for organic molecules that we find in meteorites. Mm -hmm. um, so these are uh, carbon-containing molecules, um, and I'm interested in the ones that uh, are related to biology, um, so things that biology could use. And so by looking at the organic molecules, that are found in meteorites, it gives us a way to look at samples um, where biologically interesting molecules are made, um, but they weren't made by life. They were just made by sort of abiotic chemistry, uh, things that can happen in our solar system. Um, and so I'm interested in doing that because I want to know about the chemistry that was going on before life started. And then from understanding that chemistry, try and take the next step forward to think of if we know the chemistry that was going on without life, how did that transition into a living system that we have? Wow, literally um, the origins of life. Yeah. That's pretty cool. How about yeah. you, Mark? Um, I work in curation. I'm a scientist in curation. Mm -hmm. uh, and then curation, I should explain. Uh, we basically take care of uh, NASA's collections. We have the Apollo moon rock collection. We have meteorites from Antarctica. We have samples from uh, delivered by a couple of sample return missions. Um, and all the curators, all the curation scientists are expected to have a scientific, scientific uh, interests as well as, and maintain a scientific uh, course of study. What I study is carbon in geological systems, not necessarily just organic chemistry. Aaron's much more of a, of a specialist in that, much more of an expert in that than I am, per se. But more of carbon uh, in entire systems ranging from you know gas gas phase uh, carbon that you find in rocks whether it's biological or geological carbon as part of a system on planetary uh, surfaces and interiors and such 
But it's fair to say, you know, carbon is essential is an essential component of life, right? As far as we know, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, there's a, b- a bunch of other things, you know, that we can talk about. I don't know, I, I don't know if you guys actually discuss silicon-based life forms or anything like that, or uh, yeah, I, mostly I was, carbon. Carbon's usually the the good stuff, right? That's the that's the the basic form yeah. of life. Yeah, well, so at the most simple, you know, aspect, you have carbon, yeah. and we like it because it makes four bonds, and you know, so you can make these long polymers out of it. And so if you just go down the periodic table, silicon, well, that does, you know, similar things. Right. <clears throat> um, but carbon's actually pretty special. <laughs> um, so if you compare carbon and silane, or methane and silane, so methane is CH4, silane is SiH4, you know, those would be sort of the analogous molecules, but. Um, silane uh, actually is like an incredibly explosive uh, gas and um, it's very difficult to keep on earth um, whereas methane you know sort of hangs around and gets produced so that works out well for organisms that produce methane um, and for life and then if you start looking at other things like co2 as a gas um, that's what we breathe in and breathe out Um, you know trees use that for photosynthesis Mm -hmm. if you compare that to SiO2 um, you know, that's a, a rock. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a, hard to breathe. Rock. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's yeah. So it's hard to breathe. Yeah. Um, it's not very easy for organisms to process it uh, or to access it. And so, you know, it ends up being just a less mobile, um, you know, sort of building block. If your whole life was centered around silicon, you know, now it's all sand, right? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> a little harder. So so carbon is just the, the magic ingredient, really, just because of the it can that ability to bond to so many things. Uh, yeah, at least based on, you know, f- physics in our solar system. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, you know, the whole just concept of, of life, searching for life, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that we study out in the universe, but this this quest to find life outside the solar system, why why is that so fundamental to, to us as humans to, to go out and to, to search for it? It's, it's a good question. Um, it's kind of <laughs> hard to answer because it's just kind of the best answer I could give is that it's just a fundamental question. I yeah. mean, anybody who's looked up at night, like Aaron said, has has had to wonder, you know, there's an awful lot of stuff up there. Surely there's got to be something else. Um, it's just a basic, almost primal fun, uh, uh, human query. I don't know how to put it any, any, any better than that, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like the, you know, the, the human tradition of exploring and you know, first it started out, you know, humans on a landmass, and they said, well, what's on the other side? You know, what's over those mountains? Right. What's across that river? And then they expanded to what's across that ocean? And then what's at the bottom of the seafloor? And now, you know, what's what's on the next world's over? And, you know, it's kind of that, that exploring, but also then, you know, <clears throat> if we're asking these questions, is there anyone else out there that's asking those same questions? Yeah. That's true. I mean, if you think about human history, just the fact that people travel, they find a new civilization and can open up new trade routes or even as far as cross the Atlantic Ocean and discover a whole new world trying to find more trade routes or something like that. So it's just it I guess it's you're right. It's kind of built into our DNA that we just have this drive to to it's not enough. Right. We want to we want to know. We want to know why we want to know more. Um, yeah, look. you look at the sky and you say, I'm pretty sure there's life out there, but I want to sort of prove it, you know? Yeah. I want to find it. Actually, <laughs> actually no. Pretty sure it's not yeah. good enough. <laughs> Luckily, humans have a low fascination threshold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, I mean, just besides the fascination of it, why, why is it important to understand the origins of, of life? You know, what can, we, what can we get out of it? Well, uh, for me, you know... I've just been interested, I guess, from the scientific standpoint of, you know, how did life start, um, which I think naturally leads to uh, could life exist elsewhere? Um, And so those are two kind of the basic questions, because if life could exist elsewhere, then that answers your sort of fundamental intrinsic question of is there life elsewhere? If you know how it started, then you know what signs to look for, what, you know, what kinds of environments you need to look in what types of chemistry needs to be going on uh, for you to look there for life. So how, how does um, just, you know, once you do that, you know, you, I guess you can help you search for life outside, but what about here on Earth? You know, is there, is there applications for, you know, once, you know, learning more about how the origins of life and how that comes to be, how, how can that help us here? Let's see, I would answer that by saying that, you know, f- 
fundamentally we're answering it's like we said like like we meant talked about just a minute ago this you know understanding the origin of life is a is is one of the primal fundamental human queries that, that most people want to know and as scientists what our our goal our purpose is to discover exactly that sort of thing to try to answer those sort of questions to be the interpreters of of the world around us to uh, try to enrich everyone's lives and that's a really important thing that a lot of people are interested in so it's a high priority for uh, for for scientific uh, investigation um, for a more nuts and bolts approach you know maybe understanding the fundamentals of how life arose would give us better understanding into our own uh, our own uh, bio our own biochemistry at a very fundamental level uh, that's a possibility improving life for for us you know making making life better for for humans just uh, however you know bring it into industry make better drugs or understand how you know yeah. people grow up or develop or what you know how just life right right <laughs> the fundaments of how a cell functions on the, on the chemical level you know is that, that it can't be bad to know more about that <laughs> well yeah, talking so to i would um oh, go ahead. sorry um <clears throat> so i would just add that you know a lot of what origins of life researchers uh try to do is uh sort of recreate uh how life could have started um, you know, ideally, if you had a time machine, you would just go back in time, you know, four and a half billion years Ooh, that'd be easy. to the start of life. <laughs> but it raises a philosophical uh, issue, which is what if you uh, disrupted that process and so ah. you actually killed life? So maybe that's a bad idea. Um, but, you know, without a time machine, we don't have to worry about that. But the best we can hope to do is sort of recreate how life started or how life could have started. Hmm. And so a lot of the uh, experiments that have gone on there have looked at, you know, sort of alternatives to DNA. Um, and so these alternatives to DNA um, have actually been shown to not be recognized by uh, sort of modern biology. So you can make uh, sort of a drug out of this alternative DNA that now has a longer lifespan inside of a human. Um, you know, and so it's kind of uh, expanded the range of drugs that are accessible and kind of opened up or helped contribute to the field of synthetic biology where we can start, you know, doing gene manipulation um, genetic therapies, so there really are practical applications of it. Yeah. Um, in addition to you know satisfying our kind of curiosity about how life started. Just to, I mean, out of curiosity, these studies are there are there any going on on the International Space Station right now that have to do with sort of understanding life and how that the origins or maybe just how it affects humans. Um, well, yeah, every astronaut that we send up there is sort of an experiment on how, there you, go. <laughs> uh, you know, how uh, environmental conditions are uh, affecting uh, life and biology. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also uh, exposures. Uh, so they um, put microorganisms on the outside of the ISS, for example, and then expose them to radiation, um, that sort of thing, bring the organisms back. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, an emerging field, too. Wow. All right, so so we talked a lot about the why uh, of you know why why search for life and all of that, but let's pull back and just kind of understand just what what we're talking about here. So how as as one of the experts in in the field of of understanding life and studying life, how would you define life, Aaron? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question uh, that <laughs> people have actually really wrestled with. It's not really? it's not an easy yeah. one to answer. Um, so the uh, the origins of life community has settled on a uh, sort of mouthful. Um, which is that life is a self-sustaining uh, chemical system that is uh, capable of Darwinian evolution. Huh. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but self-sustaining means something that can actually, you know, reproduce itself uh, and grow. Not necessarily grow in size, but grow in population. So if you have one molecule, now it can make, you know, 10 more, uh, et cetera, and continue to, to reproduce. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's also important that it be able to actually change over time. Um, and that's where the Darwinian evolution comes in. So if you have, uh, you know, a salt crystal that's made up of sodium and chloride, and you can add more sodium and chloride to that salt crystal, and it's getting bigger, so it's growing in some sense. Mm -hmm. There are more sodiums and chlorides in there. Um, but it doesn't really change, right? So we would never call a salt crystal alive, even though it can, you know, grow. It's a chemical system. Um, so you really need that capacity to change. Um, for an organism to be able to do something different and to sort of respond to its environment. Hmm. That's a very technical 
<laughs> no, it makes sense, right? You gotta yeah. you gotta check those boxes because you can't because otherwise, if you do the wrong definition, you know, salt is life now. So <laughs> yeah, you'll yeah. you'll get that salt life salt life uh, sticker on the back of your car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> totally different oh, thing. Very but. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, so then, uh, how for for you, Mark? I guess you're studying carbon specifically, right? So then, how does that fit into the picture of understanding life? Um, it kind of goes to what Aaron was saying about uh, understanding the the chemical conditions at the origin of life. Mm. Um, there's a fun conundrum there, actually, in that okay, we know that life arose on Earth, and but it's basically being able to get directly at the conditions when that, where, where that happened is very, very difficult because of, ironically, life itself. <laughs> and life has basically overprinted everything on the planet. Whatever conditions it was that gave rise to life on Earth, you know, they might be uh, here today, they might be something at the deep ocean, there's, there's all manner of hypotheses about this. But it's very, very difficult to pin that down because life has altered this planet so so completely i mean from the from the mantle to the surface to the top of the atmosphere chemically morphologically isotopically everything has been changed and so trying to get back at that original set of conditions that gave rise to life is actually really difficult here on earth wow are you is it is it you know postulated more that life itself started on earth and then just sort of spread and literally changed the makeup of the earth or is there some chance that maybe you know it came from somewhere else and maybe just got delivered to earth or something um i don't like that as a, <laughs> as a, here's the reason why i don't like that if uh, the the notion of life coming somewhere else is just from the sake uh, standpoint that it doesn't actually answer the question of how life arose uh-huh. you've just moved it somewhere else and put in a almost impossible journey uh, in between the origin and, and, its, and its evolution on Earth. Um, we know that the Earth has been changed considerably by life. We have oxygen in our atmosphere because of it. Um, hmm. I guess that's off on a tangent a bit, but yeah. Please go the, uh, if you need to. <laughs> um, yeah, so fundamentally that's my problem with saying that it started somewhere else and came here, is that you are introducing a, 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 a big complication to it without really uh, uh, putting any light on how it happened. Yeah. So yeah, as Mark was saying, you know, it start. we think life started in water on a rocky body somewhere. So w- whether uh, that's Earth or Mars or, you know, somewhere else, you still need life to start on a rocky body with water yeah. somewhere. So, <laughs> you know, speculating that it was Mars and then it got transported here doesn't from a practical standpoint, doesn't help you address, you know, those those conditions necessarily any better. Well, that, still, I mean, narrowing it down to, you know, we could say you need a rocky body with water for for it to at least start, right? right? Is that is that at least a, a starting point for for understanding the origins of life? I think it is. Um, that's a, that's a good distillation. Um, there's another interesting little conundrum in there. Um, <laughs> uh, Aaron mentioned Mars. Um, and I was just talking about how, how Earth has been completely overprinted. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of effort, a lot of interest in trying to find life on, on Mars, and that's fine, that's good. Uh, but there's kind of a, a hidden value to a completely dead Mars. Uh, let, let, me, let me go off on a little bit of a tangent here. Please do. Um, let's say that, that life started on Earth and that Mars, even though it had all the conditions for life, apparently water, fairly warm, fairly dense atmosphere, never had life. If that's the case, then basically Mars has preserved in a kind of mummified state those conditions early in the formation of the terrestrial planets when life arose on Earth. So one of the fun conundrums here is that a completely dead Mars with no history of life may give us it may be a very powerful tool to understanding the origin of life on Earth. Huh. So that's where the many rovers that we've sent to Mars over the year come into play, right? But we're, we're studying Mars and trying to understand its history to see what we can learn about its past and see if 
what you're saying is true. Maybe maybe the atmosphere was was thicker. Maybe there was water. And all of these instruments that we're sending there are the things that are finding all of this out. That's right. Yeah, narrowing down that history. Yeah. And looking and trying to answer the question of whether there is or was life on Mars. That's an important part of this. All right. Well, understanding Mars and, and the different, you know, rovers we've sent there to study that, you said you were part of the curation facility. So, yes. so uh, and you said all the different things that are there, right? So you're talking about mm-hmm. meteorites and, and moon rocks. It, are, are, there, are there hints there that maybe can point towards the origin of life? All right. So amongst the uh, samples we have are samples of Mars. You know, they come to us as meteorites. Uh, the... Here at NASA, we, we curate, uh, we partner with the Smithsonian to curate the Antarctic meteorite collection. We have mm-hmm. a very large number of meteorites from Antarctica. Uh, there is a team called ANSMET, the Antarctic Search for Meteorites, which goes every year and collects more of them. Actually, the team for that left to into the field to go start their annual sur- sur- uh, their search. Uh, I believe it was two days ago. They just started off. All right. So we get these, these meteorites every year, and they include... Uh, periodically Martian meteorites. Um, To date, you know, not just the NASA collection, but all the collections in the world, we have on the order of, well, in excess of a quarter of a metric ton of Mars meteorites. Wow. We have, uh, we have samples of Mars that date back to billions of years old or as young as tens of millions of years old. We have samples that have come from evidently, you know, only a meter deep to 10 meters deep or so and others that were that uh, solidified in place like a kilometer deep much deeper than that there's this random random sampling from all over the planet um, here's where I say the thing that a lot of people don't like to hear and <laughs> that I'm fairly there's a wide range of opinion about in the marsh in the scientific community on whether or not there's been life on Mars is life on Mars um, I'm fairly convinced by the meteorite evidence that, that, that there, is, there is not life on Mars, nor has there been, because hmm. in all those meteorites that we have from all over the surface, all manner of depths, all through a wide range of histories, this neat random sampling all over the planet, we have yet to see any evidence, uh, any conclusive evidence of anything metabolizing in those rocks. And that tells us that not just today, but for a very long period through the past that these, that these uh, meteorites have, have witnessed that uh, nothing has lived in them. Um, I think that that's, that's uh, a, a fairly compelling result. It's not the final say, but uh, yeah. Yeah, because it's kind of interesting because you say Martian meteorites, but you know, to an average Joe like me, I would ask the question, how does how does a piece of Mars get delivered to Earth? Right. Um, well, systems a wild, the solar system's a wild and wooly place with a lot of things that run into each other. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, basically, you know, take a look at Mars and you see cr- impact craters all over it. What happens is you know, a meteorite falls, there, falls onto Mars or the Moon or other asteroids, and uh, they spall material off in an energetic high-speed event known as an impact and kick material clean off the planet, basically. And this stuff you know, winds up in, in orbits that cross the Earth's, uh, Earth's orbit and fall to Earth, and we find them. Uh, they fall. Meteorites fall all the time. Um, uh, the reason why these guys, uh, ANSMET goes to Antarctica is because they tend to concentrate in places where they're easier to find there. There are literally places in the Antarctic ice sheet where the only rock you'll see is something that fell there. And, <laughs> and so they can go out and collect these things there. Uh, and that's the process. Uh, there's an impact at the beginning, a long period in the vacuum of space. They fall to, to Earth uh, through a, a fireball, which destroys most of the meteorite, and, uh, and anything survives, it winds up here. Huh. All right. So, so Aaron, what, what would you be... Uh, do, you, do you investigate the um, meteorites? Are you looking at organic compounds in them? Yeah. So, so what inside of them would sort of hint at life that life would exist within that and you can find traces of it um so i I actually usually look at it from the the other perspective Hmm. um so to me um you know i look at meteorites which are the surviving uh remnants of uh likely asteroids (coughs) but potentially even comets um you know it's the material that falls to earth uh and so i look at that material and i start with the the hypothesis that um there was no biology 
<laughs> so this to me is uh, you know a, a dead rock from something that you know was a, an uninhabitable environment and then I'm looking at it for the chemistry that can go on without life present um, and so for me, this is uh, like the next best alternative to my, my time machine uh, from earlier. Because <laughs> um, now I have this asteroid that's been, you know, floating around. Um, it was formed at this, uh, about the same time that the Earth was forming in the solar system, so four and a half billion years ago. And it's just been floating around in space. And every now and then pieces of these asteroids get fragmented off and they make their way in, uh, to Earth. And then we get these uh, samples. And then when I look at one of these samples, in this four and a half billion year old rock and I find things like amino acids um, that are the building blocks of proteins, um, you know, then I say, okay, so what was the chemistry that was going on in this asteroid or in the solar system four and a half billion years ago that led me to find the amino acid glycine? Hmm. Um, that's kind of the, uh, the perspective. And we know from sort of modern biology, there's DNA, RNA, and proteins. And in proteins in particular, there's 20 uh, amino acids uh, that are used in all of biology. Um, and if you look at uh, uh, particularly amino acid rich meteorite, like the uh, Murchison meteorite, which is probably one of the most famous okay. uh, carbon rich uh, meteorites. Um, so it's got uh, about 80 different amino acids in it. Whoa. And many of them are not used in biology uh, at all. Um, and so, you know, that's uh, both a good indicator that it's not contamination from modern biology on it. Um, but it's also indicative of uh, sort of abiotic chemistry, you know, happening four and a half billion years ago where there's a lot more random uh, chemical reactions that are taking place. Uh, whereas in biology, everything is very controlled. You know, you take uh, a, a range of uh, chemicals in that you eat and then you turn them into a fixed number of chemicals that, you know, make up your body. Yeah. Um, whereas abiotic chemistry will make all sorts of things, a whole range of things. Wow. What is, so, so what does that mean? That means that you know, you know, life here only has restrictions based on what could be possible, and then maybe there's, maybe there's amino acids that could create life maybe on another planet with a different set of amino acids that are not restricted by the norms of Earth. Is that kind of fair? Yeah. Uh, All right. At, well, I could at, be a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> and there, that, Maybe not. Too that, fast. That, okay. Yeah. So there, there's two sort of variations on that. Um, so, it, and both of them would, would sort of be the ideal case um, or um, you can't have two ideal cases, can you? Uh, but both would be two very good cases. Okay. Um, so one is that uh, you're looking for life on another body and you find life and it uses entirely different amino acids. Hmm. Um, but it's got proteins and they're just different than what we have on Earth. And you say, okay, cool. You know, that's um, life and it's not something that we just brought in our spacecraft. Yeah. Um, the other uh, difference that could happen is subtler. Um, and it's uh, an interesting thing. So we talked about carbon being able to make four bonds. Mm -hmm. um, and carbon makes sort of a, a tetrahedron shape when it's in these, um, this, uh, <clears throat> when it's made four bonds. And so it's almost like a pyramid. Oh, okay. Um, and so what's interesting is that the four atoms connected to that, um, that carbon atom, if they're arranged uh, in a different way um, uh, stereochemically, or so like the different sides of the pyramid, and then one point sort of floating up above it, um, you can actually have two different uh, sort of chiralities or stereochemistries of those molecules. So in we talk about it shorthand, left-handed and right-handed molecules, okay. um, which are really just an easier way for us to keep track of it. Your two hands are the same, they do the same job. Yeah. You know, one's just a left hand and the other's a right hand. And you don't notice a problem until you grab the wrong glove, you know, and it no longer <laughs> fits on your hand. Okay, so it's more of a fitting problem rather than like a dominant hand kind of problem. It's more yeah. of a, okay, right. how things fit together. Yeah, and you know, when you measure the, the chemical and physical properties of um, molecules that are handed, uh, they're identical, except in how they interact with other handed molecules or uh, certain kinds of light. And so mm -hmm. the, if you found life on another planet that didn't use different amino acids, um, it would be interesting if it used a different handedness than life on Earth. So all life on Earth makes left-handed proteins. And all life on all? Earth, all. What? Wow, okay. Yep. So all life on Earth uses left-handed amino acids in its proteins. 
and all life on Earth uses right-handed sugars in its DNA and RNA. And so if you were looking for life elsewhere and you found only right-handed proteins and, say, only left-handed sugars, then, hey, you've got life and it's definitely not Earth life. So it's, you know, definitely uh, a difference. Yeah. So, so DNA, RNA is a right-handed sugar that yeah. just happens to pair nicely with the left-handed amino acids, which are exclusive to Earth, right? Yeah. So to biology. To biology. Okay. So, so then, would is there a left-handed sugar of DNA, RNA, or are you thinking there's something entirely different, like um, that would fit with the right-handed amino acid? Maybe I'm not asking the question right. No, it's. Um, it would still be DNA, RNA. Yeah, so there, okay. um, you know, so so DNA is deoxyribose nucleic acid and RNA is ribose nucleic acid. Right, right. And what we leave out of there uh, is a little prefix at the front that has a D. Um, and in the case of uh, amino acids and proteins, we leave out a little uh, symbol in front that's an L. Um, and so it's believed that one of those came first and was fixed. So you either had left-handed proteins or right-handed sugars that came about. And then proteins um, or um, the other one evolved around it. So you started with a system that had left-handed proteins and that fit really well with right-handed sugars. And that was where evolution took off and that was how you got you know, sort of left-handed life and right-handed sugars. I see. Um, okay. But we were talking about synthetic biology and origins of life experiment, um, experiments. So I have left-handed proteins and right-handed sugars in me and if you give me a drug that's made out of left-handed sugars, my left-handed proteins don't recognize those sugars anymore. Hmm. And so those molecules can stick around a lot longer in my body because my natural mechanisms for processing, you know, DNA from food I eat or, you know, bacteria that are, you know, floating around everywhere, they don't work on those molecules. Hmm. So what's an example of a left-handed sugar that would just sort of stick around? Um, so you could actually make just left-handed DNA. Oh. And, and left-handed RNA. How do you make it? <laughs> um, so that's a uh, uh, synthetic organic chemistry oh, okay. um, that ends up uh, being fairly difficult. But what's interesting about this is so people have gone in the lab and taken a, a, a naturally occurring left-handed protein and they've synthesized the right-handed version of it. Yeah. And they found that it works just fine. Uh, you know, it folds into its active state. There's no difference in the activity except that now this right handed protein recognizes a left-handed sugar molecule. So in this case, I think it was a glucose molecule. Okay. So we eat right-handed glucose all the time. That's what our natural food is. Um, but this uh, artificial enzyme that they made wouldn't recognize that. But when they gave it left-handed glucose, it, it it's, or processed its chemical reaction just, just fine. Huh. So then... All right, let's think about a hypothetical. So if you're on a, if you're on a, another planet that is in the mirror world, I guess, right? You got right-handed proteins and you got left-handed sugars. Is, would it kind of look, if, if it's like a mirror version of Earth, right? It's just like the same. Would that work? Or are we talking about something that would be entirely, like things would just look different, act different, or is it just a mirror image? It would be weight loss world. <laughs> weight loss world. You go there and eat all you want. You don't actually. You're not actually able to metabolize any of the, of the food. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you know, there's no reason why that sort of biology wouldn't work within its own system. But you know, if we went there and tried to live there and eat the fruit off the tree or whatever, we wouldn't get anything out of it. If I'm not mistaken. There is a commercially available uh, artificial sweetener that is the. Uh, uh, other-handed version of sugar, and it tastes sweet, but you can't digest it. Huh. So what does it do? Does it make you... It's not weight loss city in that in that world, is it? Or is it, uh, is it because you're not processing it, maybe you don't gain any weight? I don't know how that you would work. You can't use it. You it's can't just, use it? Yeah. It's just... Yeah. So you, would you pass it then? It'll be... It'll be mm -hmm. Okay, so it wouldn't just, like, stick around and, and be fat. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> All right, maybe I'll maybe I'll sprinkle that on on some uh, some cupcakes or something and and tell myself <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. Just the idea of light, right handedness and left handedness, and that there's just there's a certain set of amino acids that exist on Earth, but there's there's a whole realm of possibilities that are mm -hmm. that can exist just because we've studied, you know 
rocks in space or something. Yeah. So correct, correct me if I'm wrong here, and because this is just a piece of trivia that I thought I knew, but now that you guys are here, I want to ask you, is an asteroid when it's in space, uh-huh. it's a meteor when it's passing through the atmosphere, and a meteorite once it hits the ground? Or a meteoroid in space, which is meteoroid. a smaller asteroid. Oh, okay. But yes, meteor when it's when it's passing through the atmosphere, and that's the luminous ball. And then yeah. if anything survives to the ground, that's a meteorite. Okay, yeah, uh, that's always something that's stuck in my mind, just because you know I, I used to call it the wrong thing, but then yeah. get um, so when you study meteorites, you are specifically talking about the things that are on the ground. That's you're right. not going out and grabbing things and bringing them back, or you're not catching things as they're passing through the atmosphere. Nope. You're you're going out, and Antarctica is a good place to find them because mm-hmm. black rocks on a white surface are pretty good, right? Yep. Do they? Is it fair to say meteors are falling through the atmosphere all the time? All the time. Yeah. On average, there is a meteorite fall somewhere on Earth about once a day. Wow. But you know, most of those are very small. Hmm. Uh, you figure seventy percent of them are going to land in the ocean because planet's about seventy percent ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, of the remainder uh, of the uh, of the remaining thirty percent, half of them are going to happen during the day, and probably some, no one will notice them. You know, most of the ones that, that, that make it down of the of the remainder from that, <coughs> excuse me, fall someplace it's you know difficult to recover, and it doesn't take much. You know, tall grass is enough, and you won't find them. Oh. Uh, swamp is enough, you won't find them. If it lands on a nuclear power plant, you're not going to get those back either. <laughs> you know. On so on average, you get uh, about a meteorite fall a day somewhere on Earth. Uh, there's uh, the um, the uh, Meteoritical Society maintains a database of all the world's uh, meteorites, okay. and they record give or take about a dozen new meteorite falls per year. Those are the ones that are actually found. Uh, some of those hit something and then you know they become hard to miss, like coming through the roof of someone's house or a dentist's office, yeah. um, or or other ones are just very large events that uh, you know people go hunting for and find. Okay. So there's your, there's your statistics. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of the material that comes in is just dust. Yeah, uh, by the uh, time it makes mm-hmm. it through, and so if you think about like meteor showers that we have all the time, that's when Earth is passing through the debris from a tail of a comet. Okay. So this shooting star is material that's burning up, you know, but some of that material falls in as dust, and so you would never, you know, yep. notice it. Yeah. But there's little grains of cosmic dust that are... Yeah. yeah. We actually have a collection of that, too, the cosmic dust, dust collection. Um, How do you collect cl- cosmic dust? Airplanes, very, very high altitude. Uh, NASA has a, uh, operates a fleet of uh, basically former spy planes, uh, WB-57s here at Ellington and uh, ER-2, which is sort of like a U-2 out at Dryden, California, and they fly to you know, 60,000 feet and up and deploy collectors that, that collect this falling dust out of the atmosphere. Wow. So if, if, if it's not big enough to actually strike the Earth, you say yep. it kind of, kind of disintegrates and doesn't hit the Earth, but it's, mm-hmm. it's there. It's in it's the atmosphere there. just kind of floating around at 60,000 feet. Mm-hmm. That's cool. All right. I like to see that collection. That would be a pretty cool collection. Oh, Cosmic we, dust. We can do that. <laughs> so once it passes through the atmosphere, is there is there a change that happens? Like, is there a difference with if you were to pick up a meteorite off the ground? Maybe there's something that the way it interacted with the Earth's atmosphere or something that changed something that would be different from if you were to find the same thing up in space. Um, yes. Okay. The most fundamental uh, change is that a good probably 99% of it is now gone and turned into a plasma on the way to the ground. Oh, yeah. So most of it's lost. Okay. Um, the, the next big thing that happens is the outside of any meteorite you find is going to be covered with a, uh, a molten crust. It's called a, a, a fusion crust. And it, it kind of looks like a pottery glaze. It's from basically flash melting the surface of the thing as it's coming through the atmosphere. Wow. And uh, But the probably the biggest change that happens to any of them you know, rule number one of meteorites is that they all have life and they get the life from earth when they land here they're coming into our biosphere you know they will land on the ground somewhere even the ones in antarctica we can we found uh, life in some terrestrial excuse me life in in a lot of these meteorites yeah um so that's the biggest change because the the you know anything infecting these uh, rocks tends to start to eat any of the carbon that's in there and process it and change the like he was saying it takes the uh, native amino acids and starts to process them into as as you're basically turning it into microbial matter now it has a chiral uh, preference as uh, as the uh, as the uh, the microbes grow wow. uh, they change it isotopically and chemically over time and that's probably the single biggest change that happens especially for 
you know, organic chemistry and the things we're looking for 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 these questions of uh, you know, origin of life and whatnot. Yeah. So then, how do you how do you isolate to find out what things have not been affected and what things you can tell are within the um, meteorite that have you know were were there before it came to Earth and was affected by Earth's atmosphere? Um, exactly the kind of chemical signals that Aaron was just talking about. Ah. Chirality, you know, the amino acid abundance, you know, looking for, for bio, uh, bios, biomarkers slash biosignatures, depending on what you want to call them, uh, such as DNA. If you find terrestrial DNA and terrestrial microbes in this thing, then well, yeah, it, it's been altered. You can kind of expect that. But yeah. good laboratory practice is, you know, is, is, a, is, fundamental to sorting out exactly that question you know you have your blanks and standards and replicate measurements and statistical analyses um and yeah when i'm looking for uh molecules that are relevant to biology i start with the assumption that anything that looks like biology in the sample is from biology that was introduced on earth um, and then i need the evidence in the <clears throat> in the meteorite to you know to support that, that, that a conclusion other than that so if the amino acids um, were made out in space, uh, they should actually have uh, an equal mixture of left-handed and right-handed amino acids. They shouldn't have that predominant um, you know, uh, left-handed excess that biology shows. So right. if I take a bacteria and I run it through my meteorite processing methods, I'll get all L amino acids, and a little bit of it gets converted back to D during the process. Um, so a meteorite, the initial you know, sort of baseline hypothesis is that if it's from the meteorite, it should be a 50-50 mixture. And if it's skewed towards uh, left-handed, then I have to assume it's biological contamination unless there's some other piece of evidence that tells me um, that, you know, no, this really did actually happen out in space. For example, way more right-handed amino acids, right? Uh, th so that would be, uh, you know, the kind of the ideal scenario, yeah. especially when looking for life. Yeah. Um, there are other less uh, sort of obvious um, markers that we can look at. Um, so one of them has to do with uh, stable isotope ratios. Um, and so if we think about uh, something like carbon, um, it normally has, in the most abundant form of carbon, has six protons and six neutrons, and it's carbon-12. Okay. And then about 1% of carbon on Earth is carbon-13. Um, and then some trace amount is carbon-14, which is actually radioactive. Um, and oh. so that's what they use for radioactive dating. Okay. Um, and so things that are found on Earth uh, tend to be enriched in carbon-12 relative to carbon-13. Um, and then even furthermore, things that are processed by biology on Earth uh, really like carbon-12, and they don't like carbon-13 very much. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is if you go out into a very cold environment, uh, so out in uh, sort of our, our pre-sun, our protosolar nebula, um, where places were much colder, um, you actually prefer the heavy isotopes. So carbon-13 is actually favored over carbon-12, more so relative to the, um, the preference on Earth. So it's not like you have 10 times as much carbon-13. It's like 1.01% carbon-13 instead of 1% you know, carbon-13. Huh. Um, and so from these very small signal differences, um, you can actually tell that something was actually made out in space rather than um, uh, processed by biology on Earth. And it's these kind of subtle differences that they actually use in uh, like Olympic events to determine whether people are using steroids. Oh, really? Um, because our biochemistry produces different like testosterone than uh, like soy, um, you know, plants if you're getting it from plants. Um, and so you can actually tell from the isotopic signatures whether the testosterone in an athlete came from them or it, um, if it was produced in a lab or grown in a, you know, some, some plant somewhere. Wow. The answers and the details. Yes. Literally, you're looking at the finest details and even the slightest change. Um, you can tell if it's otherworldly. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's where you have to start with the, you know, the, the hypothesis that this is contamination. Yeah. You know, um, unless you can prove that it's not. Okay. So then, so then, is there a effort to go out and, you know, find something more pristine, maybe, um, rather than doing getting a meteorite, maybe go out and get an asteroid that has not touched the Earth's atmosphere. Is there something we're doing now? Yep. <laughs> that would be OSIRIS-REx. Okay. Uh, so OSIRIS-REx mission is on its way to Bennu. Uh, it will collect samples from that asteroid. It is a carbonaceous body. 
Uh, we can tell this by, you know, spectroscopy at a distance. And um, actually what, what, we're, what we're touching on here is uh, sample return missions and why you would want to do them. This is actually a really nice conversation leading up to it. <laughs> um, for example, uh, let me explain why you want to do missions like this in general. Uh, let me use the example of Mars. Okay, we're 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 seriously talking about starting doing this, uh, collecting samples from Mars and returning them from Earth. Now, I had said earlier that we already have a quarter of a metric ton of Martian meteorites on Earth. So going to get if you're just going to go get more for the sake of getting more, it's really not a really good use of your resources. Yeah. But we also talked about how any meteorite that falls to Earth is you, you have to assume it's contaminated, mm -hmm. and so what you the really nice things you get out of a out of a sample return mission that you can't get from meteorites is you get to collect me materials where you very to great detail know their contamination and alteration history, and by and large you're going to get stuff that's very minimally altered if 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 it's you know that's that's usually one of the one of the design goals of the mission definitely. Uh, a part of part of the ones we've ever done. Mm -hmm. um, so you control the contamination history of the meteorite, and you get to know to great detail what it is. You know by by monitoring during the course of the mission. You also get to select your samples. Um, on the, for the example of uh, Mars uh, samples, what we can do is collect um, types of rock that we don't have in the Martian meteorite collection. Sedimentary rocks take very poorly to getting pounded by a meteorite and blasted off the planet. They tend to turn into dust and you never see them. But we can go and carefully collect these. And basically, the, the meteorites that, that survive the trip from Mars to Earth are, tend to be very, very tough rocks. Now we can go and carefully collect the ones that we are actually more interested in, in some respects, for uh, investigating uh, the, the hypothesis of past or present life on that planet. The sedimentary rocks, the evaporites, the very friable, crumbly stuff that, that may preserve evidence of, of ancient organics. Those we can collect. Um, so you, and finally, you get to know exactly where your rock came from. When you look at a meteorite, you know, most meteorites, Martian meteorites, we can say, where's this from? Well, it's from Mars, you know, somewhere on the planet. <laughs> if you go and do a sample return mission, you know the contamination history, you get to select samples that you don't otherwise have access to, and you know exactly where it came from on the planet. And you can take everything you learn about it in the lab and, and apply it to, you know, an outcrop, a spot, a crater, uh, a, a, a lithology, some location on, the, on that planet and start to build the, the, the greater history of the planet in great detail that way. Right. So that, for whether it's for Mars or for Bennu or you know eventually comets or otherwise, that's kind of the the, the driving impetus for uh, doing these sample return missions. Hey, well, I'm going to stay optimistic and say if we explore some of these spots in the more pristine environment of Mars, I think we can maybe look for the origins of life that way. Well, but if there's you know so. Um, as Mark was saying, you know, the, the rocks that we get on Earth from meteorites are really hard, tough ones. And so, um, you know, the chances of life living in a solidified lava flow, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's probably a little bit different than if you could actually get material that was in a location that we think was the bottom of a lake, say, yeah. where you would expect life to have existed and perhaps get actually, you know, trapped into that, that sedimentary material. Yeah. yeah. That's true, because yep. location, 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 right? <laughs> yes. It's a fair argument. So like yeah. I said, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of discussion about this. There's, there's, it is a, a uh, not, not all scientists are, are, how do I put it? We're still discussing it. <laughs> <laughs> More research is needed. More so, research. <laughs> yeah. and, and scientists hate consensus. Ah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Um, so, so then what's, uh, you said, uh, Bennu is, a carb carbaceous, is that the carbonaceous. word? Carbonaceous. Carbonaceous. Okay. Carbonaceous. It is, it is black as coal. Black as coal. So it's yep. full of carbon. Very full interesting thing to, to observe. So what's Osiris-Rex going to do? Is it going to land and bring something back or is it just going to stay there? What's, what's the mission like? Um, yeah. So Bennu is about a half kilometer wide, uh, asteroid. Um, uh, Osiris-Rex launched in September of 2016. Okay. Uh, rendezvous is going to be in uh, 2018. Um, All right. And actually, the spacecraft is going to orbit for about a year and a half um, and carefully map out the surface of the asteroid uh, to identify scientifically interesting uh, regions that it can collect a sample from. Um, and 
the scientifically interesting question will be counterbalanced by uh, safety uh, um, because you can't, uh, you know, really endanger the spacecraft while you're trying to collect a sample. Yeah. Ooh, that sharp mountain looks really, really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It, it, it's more important that you get the, the sample back than, <laughs> um, than the, that you choose the, the exact most uh, scientifically interesting right. uh, place. Um, and so the, after finding a suitable location, uh, the spacecraft is going to go down and it's got almost like a little reverse uh, vacuum cleaner. Uh, so it's got a little uh, uh, touch and go uh, sample acquisition mechanism that will actually contact the surface of the asteroid. And then it's got uh, nitrogen gas that it will actually blow into that surface. And that will actually push the dust into the, the sample collector. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like I was saying, like a reverse vacuum cleaner, right? Okay. You're, you're yeah. blowing the dirt. Blowing and, it, yeah. Um, you know, that works on a rather small body because gravity is much less uh, of an issue there. Um, so the, the mission uh, requirement is to get at least 60 grams um, and from experiments uh, on Earth and under uh, similar gravity conditions, they should be able to get, you know, several hundred grams uh, or more that will uh, then be tucked away into a sample return capsule that will... Uh, make its way back to Earth um, and will land. Uh, I'm amazed that people can do this with orbital dynamics, but it will <laughs> land in Utah um, wow. it, it, in the desert in September of 2023. Um, <laughs> and then these samples will be transported to a curation facility um, and processed and then eventually made available to researchers all over the world uh, who are interested in you know, studying this material. Oh, that is cool. Fire it out to space and land it in Utah. That's that's a target. That's quite a target practice right there. That's pretty cool. Um, so I guess it's going to kind of be like the so the the moon rocks that we have here and are some of them have actually never been exposed to Earth's atmosphere, right? They've been sealed. Are we going to expect the same thing for Osiris Rex? It's going to be it's going to be sealed away from Earth's atmosphere. Some of the samples will be preserved for future research. Okay. Um, I think the design of the capsule doesn't keep it entirely free of Earth's atmosphere, uh, but okay. for the but it's you know for what they're trying to do you know for the mission goals that was that was appropriate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely some will be preserved away for future generations, just like uh, any of the other collections. All right. That's a pretty cool mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. looking it. forward to seeing that. Yeah, 2023, that'll be a cool thing to watch it come back. Um, so Aaron, since I have you here, I did kind of want to bring up uh, DNA sequencing just because you, you know, that's such an interesting thing that happened on the International Space Station, literally sequencing DNA in real time. Can you kind of explain kind of what, what that project is all about? Yeah, um, <clears throat> so this, uh, this is a project that actually has uh, sort of two goals. Okay. Um, so one is, uh, you know, crew health and human exploration. And then um, I have my sort of ulterior uh, motive um, uh, <laughs> or goal, which is uh, looking for uh, life elsewhere in the, the solar system. So it's a nice marriage of two applications of the same technology. Pretty cool marriage. Yeah. <laughs> looking uh, for life outside the solar system and <laughs> studying astronauts in space. Pretty cool pairing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this, this tech, uh, the, the DNA sequencing, um, we want to use it for crew health um, to be able to, um, you know, do environmental monitoring. Um, and so you want to look on the International Space Station uh, or ISS for uh, microbes, be able to identify them to know if there's harmful organisms there. Hmm. Um, and then as we think about going beyond uh, ISS, if you're going to send humans to Mars and they're going to go on a three-year mission, um, if a crew member shows signs of an infection, um, you know, uh, we want to have a diagnostic capability to know, you know, so if you cough up some phlegm, okay, what's in that phlegm? And then is that something that needs to be treated with an antibiotic or is that something that your body will clear on its own? Um, you know, be able to make informed decisions about that because we're not going to be able to, you know, do resupply uh, missions, you know, on, it'd, be, it'd be hard to, uh, you know, hit, hit a moving target flying to Mars and <laughs> catch up to it. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to give that sort of in-flight, uh, you know, diagnostic capability. Um, with the DNA sequencing. Um, and then when the humans get to Mars, um, you know, I'd like them to be able to go out and dig up a, a sample and extract it and actually look for life um, that's, that's present on Mars. Wow. So sequencing DNA is kind of like, I'm trying to explain it in as layman terms as possible to wrap my brain around it because it is pretty complicated stuff, but it's basically identifying. Right. Yeah. It's it's so if you you said you know if they have a cough they can do a sample and they know exactly what you're coughing up they know the exact makeup and then you can 
identify what kind of antibiotic you need to take because you know exactly what's inside your body. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so DNA, um, you know, is, is like a language. It's, it, yeah. it, 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 it's got an alphabet. Uh, there's only four letters. There's A, G, C, and T. Huh. Um, but all life on earth uses that same alphabet um, from the tiniest microbe to humans. Um, and so it's sort of like books in a library, right? The books are all different huh. um, because they have uh, more letters or less letters that are arranged in different words. Um, and so, you know, analyzing, uh, I guess, sequencing DNA is like taking a page out of that book and then searching for all the words on that page. And then if you had a you know, computer that could process it, you could say, oh, that page came from you know, A Tale of Two Cities, or that page came from you know, this book, All right. or that paragraph. Um, and so the more of that page or paragraph, the better of a match you can get. Yeah. You know, if you have a chapter of a book, then you can nail it down to, <laughs> d d discounting plagiarism, you, know, <laughs> you, yeah. you, you can nail it down to a single uh, book or you know, a, a single organism. All right, that's pretty cool. Although, I mean, for for uh, alphabet of four letters, you know, life is life is pretty diverse <laughs> for such a tiny alphabet. And you 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 know, you're taking analogies from books, and I'm imagining the books, but four letters that can make all these different things. That's that's pretty astounding. Yeah. Well, so a a virus can have around fifty thousand of these letters in its entire genome. So all the instructions that a virus needs to do to infect a cell and then get the cell to make more copies of it, all encapsulated in 50,000 letters. Um, and then something like the microbe that that virus might infect could have you know several million um, of these letters. And then humans are about two and a half billion uh, of these letters, yeah. uh, or three billion. Um, and then actually there are uh, certain plants that even have like tenfold more <laughs> of these uh, <laughs> letters in their genome. Yeah. Um, but it's a, you know, it's it, it's pretty amazing that that biology can do so much with a limited, you know, sort of a, the, the limited alphabet. That's true. But thank thank goodness there's no uh, there's no word in the English language that's 10 million letters long. So that's yeah, uh, that's pretty good. It'd be really hard to write uh, Tale of Two Cities with. Uh, <laughs> you probably get one word in, and uh, still, it'll be the biggest novel you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so an interesting thing about that is they're actually starting to switch to uh, uh, or trying to develop DNA as a way to store uh, information. Um, so it's like a new uh, data, I guess, like replacing solid state drives or uh, spinning hard drives is to encapsulate things in DNA. Whoa. All right. Well, it's got a lot of storage, right? Because you can, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can it, fit it. Wow. Okay. That's difficult to wrap my mind around. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about storing something in like a cell. Can, can I talk about something else weird? Yes, too? please. Um, no. <laughs> this is uh, not sorry. the place for that. No. <laughs> um, but so, you know, one of the, the interesting things that we've, you know, we've talked about life as we know it and the search for life. And then there's this concept of being able to identify life as you don't know it. Um, Whoa. And so we've talked about, um, you know, left-handed and right-handed proteins, and it'd be great if you could find right-handed proteins or amino acids that aren't on Earth or, you know, left-handed sugars or sugars that aren't on Earth. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and so that's one of the, the cool things for me about the DNA sequencer project um, is the way that it sequences DNA has actually got these little tiny pores uh, that are just big enough for a single strand of DNA to pass through. Huh. And... When there's nothing in the pore, uh, you get basically an open current. And then as the DNA uh, molecule passes through it, it blocks that pore, and so the current is reduced. And the reduction in current uh, tells you something about the sequence of DNA that's passing through it. Whoa. So like AGCTA would have a different uh, signal blocking than GACTA, um, for example. Thanks. Um, and so it's an, an entirely electrochemical uh, way of detecting this and you can apply it to other molecules that we might not necessarily recognize as life so LMNOP. yes <laughs> um, th that's yeah. exactly right and so um, people are using this uh, technology to sequence RNA which is different than DNA mm -hmm. um, it differs in the sugar so it's deoxyribose versus ribose, ribose yeah. um, but in RNA an interesting thing is that you have more than the uh, A G C and T Actually, RNA uses U instead of T. Um, uh -huh. But in uh, things like ribosomal RNA and transfer RNA, which are present in biology, 
uh, extensive modification is made of the the bases. So there's actually like 118 different letters um, oh. that show up in RNA uh, that people are figuring out how to actually characterize using this nanopore sequencing. Um, wow. And so I'm interested in, uh, not just me, a, a number of people are, are looking at this, but you know, making a more universal life detection mechanism. So, you know, if you can do DNA, but now you don't need the deoxyribose, it can be any sugar in there. Or oh. instead of the A, G, C, and T letters, if you can L, M, N, O, P, as Mark said. Yeah, um, it'll just look for letters and then just yeah. see what pops up, yeah. Yeah, and so you lose some of the resolution, so maybe you won't know that it was an A, but uh. if you start seeing a polymer of semi-repeating, you know, signals or letters, you know, I, you know, at some point that starts to tell you what there's information there. Oh, wow. And that, yeah, that, that, that's where it gets really deep is that, <laughs> you know, probably, you know, one of the most important bio signatures of biomarkers is information, mm. right? Yes. You have to have instructions for how to do whatever it is that the organism is doing and a way to copy that information. All right, I can think of like a hundred like different ways we can go and just go on a tangent and talk about all these crazy topics. It's amazing, but we do have to wrap up. So I kind of wanted to end on something like uh, some some of the guests I like to bring in and and ask this question specifically because we're at the Johnson Space Center and it's human space flight. But for you guys, you know, in the search for life, you know, why in from your point of view is human exploration so important to discovery, especially in the field of looking for the origins of life I can give my answer sure yeah um, you know basically humans have an innate need to explore it's something written into I think most children uh, unfortunately I think a lot of adults tend to lose that over time but it's it's there um, the we can explore with with robots I'll use some air quotes. You can't see them, but you know, we can, it, it, it's exploration. But in a sense, you're with a robot. You are exploring through a computer screen, and that's fine. You do learn. It is exploration. But on it's may not be. You know, at what point is that no longer satisfactory? I'd ask answer that with a question. You know, at what point do you just have to go there and see it yourself? You know, there's, there's technical arguments for why you want to send people. They are, I believe, much better in a field environment when you're investigating something. You know, they can turn around data. They can come up with new ideas. They can process things. They can actually pick, you know, you can get a whole lot more out of having somebody kneel down, pick up a rock, and turn it over in their hand than in, in some instances. And in some of the data you get from uh, rovers and, and landers and such. You know, that's been my experience. But fundamentally there's that innate drive to explore and it's and yeah that's that's the question you know when is watching all this through a computer screen going to be unsatisfactory how about you Aaron? i gotta follow that up <laughs> um so i would uh you know echo the uh the uh just the, the much more versatile skill set that, you know, a human has compared to a robot, you know, where uh, a human can look out for several miles and walk and adjust its path in a pretty easy way and, you know, not get stuck somewhere. So you can, you know, explore a lot more ground in, in a given, you know, time period. Um, if you want to dig a hole, you can dig a deeper hole because you've got a shovel and you just keep digging until you decide that, um, you know, it, it, it's easier for a human to make these decisions themselves than, you know, try to communicate all that to a, uh, to a robot. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, as Mark was saying, it comes back to that sort of innate curiosity, you know, where, uh, what's over the mountain, what's across the river, what's at the bottom of the ocean. Um, you know, we didn't know that these other places would be, uh, good or great or, you know, useful, but you kind of have to know. Um, and so, you know, going to Mars and, uh, or the moon and learning how to live on the moon or learning how to live on Mars, you know, teaches you something, um, about, you know, how to live on earth, how to travel in space, how to live in other planets. And, and then it serves as a stepping stone. Okay. Well, what's, you know, beyond Mars, what's beyond our solar system, you know, we're going to need to develop light speed travel and all that. But, you know, assuming that we're able to do those things, 
you know, it just it it, it enables the next uh, frontier, if you will. Very cool, guys. Thanks so much for coming on today. This was a fascinating topic, and always at the end of these, I get so charged, especially when we end with like the why. I'm like, yes, let's do it. Let's go out and explore. So, thanks so much for coming on and talking about life. Can't wait to follow it up with one of these weird tangents that we almost went on today. But uh, thanks again, guys. Yeah, no, Thank our, you. our pleasure. Great. Thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Aaron Burton and Dr. Mark Fries about life in the solar system, went on a couple awesome tangents and had some great conversations just about everything life in the universe and just kind of scratched the surface, really. We can do a bunch more episodes just on this topic alone, but if you cannot wait and need to know the stuff right now, uh, both of um, both Aaron and Mark are part of the Astro Materials group known as Aries here. You can go to aries.jsc.nasa.gov uh, to learn all about the different initiatives just going on in Astro Materials alone. And that's you can learn more about Cyrus Rex there, and you can learn more about uh, meteorites and curation, and even you can learn how to get your hands on a meteorite if you are dying to uh, get your hands on and, and study the sample material yourself and maybe search for organic compounds. Otherwise, if you just want to focus on just OSIRIS-REx, go to nasa.gov slash OSIRIS-REx. On social media, if you want to talk to us there, there is the Johnson Space Center um, accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, Astro Materials has their own, uh, NASA Aries on several different accounts. Otherwise, you can you can find them. It's uh, NASA Astro Materials. If you want to use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms, any one of those pages, you can submit an idea. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston We Have a Podcast so we can find it and answer it in a later episode for you. Or perhaps dedicate an entire episode to it. So this podcast was recorded on November 28th, 2017. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Tracy Calhoun, and Jenny Knotts. And thanks again to Dr. Aaron Burton and Dr. Mark Fries for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.